In this uh, new year, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. I can't seem to get this to jump ahead. And uh, we've got a few more weeks. We are, what are we, four weeks from Easter? Is that right? Three weeks? I can't, can't keep straight. We're, we're coming quickly through the season of Lent. Easter is coming just around the corner. But in addition to several of the other passages we've looked at, I've been trying to help us um, listen to or notice the five teaching blocks, sometimes called the five discourses or five sermons in Matthew's gospel. Matthew kind of builds his whole gospel around these five longer teaching times um, that Jesus shares what, what the kingdom of God is like, what discipleship is all about. And so we, um, we started, last month we looked at the Sermon on the Mount for several weeks in a row. That was Matthew 5 through 7. After that, we touched on his sermon on mission as he sends the disciples out to carry out the, the things of his kingdom, the priorities of his kingdom. Last week, we looked at Jesus' sermon on stories or parables and, and how we're to think about the power of the kingdom of God, what it means to, to enter into that kingdom. Today, I want us to look at Jesus' sermon, sometimes called his sermon for or about the church in Matthew 18. Of course, at this point in time in Matthew's gospel, churches as we think about them didn't exist yet, right? There weren't any buildings with crosses or steeples attached to the top. The the movement of of Jesus' kingdom and his disciples were, were sort of still taking form and shape. But it's called his, his sermon for the church because it talks about the kind of relationships um, that will define our lives together as, as people following Jesus. And actually, just before Matthew 18, back in Matthew 16, so between where we were last week and this week, in Matthew 16, a couple important things happen there that, that sort of point to the need for or the reason for, for Jesus creating a church. The first is during a time of of Jesus' teaching, he turns to the disciples and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And there are are different replies among the people, but Peter, Simon Peter, in a moment of great faith, a moment of great insight, confesses that he believes Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And more than that, that he is the Son of God. Jesus turns to Peter in that moment and he says, upon this rock, not just Peter himself, but upon that confession, upon that certainty of of who Jesus is, upon this rock I will build my church. It's kind of the first first time this idea of of a coming church, a coming gathering, a a coming group of people following Jesus will emerge called the church. And in that uh, passage, just following that acknowledgement that upon, upon that rock, Jesus will build his church. He talks about providing leadership and an authority for this group of people that will soon emerge and, and will begin to follow him. And appointing disciples and, and others to care for those needs. The second thing that happens in Matthew 16, though, uh, that, that helps us understand why there is a church is that Jesus increasingly begins to speak about his need to go to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, that he will be betrayed, he will be arrested, he will be crucified and killed, and then eventually 
resurrected into glory. And there's this idea that that Jesus is coming near to the end of his kingdom ministry and he is going to pass along that ministry, that authority, that, that kingdom to those who come after him. He's going to pass it along to us, the church. And so we, we need to be ready to understand what that, what that will look like. All of us have our own experiences in the church. We have our own preconceived ideas about what this church that Jesus has created is supposed to be like. This morning, as we look at Matthew 18, I want us to think about the assumptions we bring to the church, but then also listen for the reality that Jesus says will define the church's existence. What is Jesus's vision for the life of the church? So let me pray for us as we open up to Matthew chapter 18. Lord, we know that the church is not this building we're sitting in now. We know it's not limited to Jericho or the United States or this moment in history, but it is a a people through time and history called to belong to you, called to be shaped by who you are, called with mission and purpose together, called to be deeply invested in each other. So Lord, I pray you give us the willingness to acknowledge where we have brought unhelpful assumptions into our life together as a church. May we hear your word and your gospel as good news in terms of how we have actually been invited to live into this place called the church. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to start out with just the first six verses in Matthew 18. Again, there's, there's begun to be this talk about a church and a time when Jesus would, would be leaving them and something new would be coming forth. And I think that that leaves the disciples with all sorts of questions for Jesus. And so we see one of those here at the beginning of chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, who then, Jesus, is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to them, to him, and he placed the child among them and he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change... Unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, though, who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. The question here is, who is the greatest? The greatest in the kingdom, the greatest in this church that will soon emerge. It feels like we we catch the disciples here in a maybe a kind of unguarded moment of excitement, ambition, where they, they honestly inquire and imagine together 
what greatness is going to be like in the, the kingdom of Jesus that's coming. Who are going to be the heroes in that kingdom? Who are going to emerge as the, the great leaders? The ones who will have authority, the ones who will have attention, the ones who will be glamorous in that kingdom. Jesus, who's going to be the greatest? And I think we can assume that working behind that question is an assumption. That in the kingdom and in the church that Jesus is creating, there's a, an upward movement, an upward direction that we should be following. Trying to work our way up into greatness in this thing called the church. Whether that's by using our own efforts, by using charm or charisma or spiritual influence. We can assume that the reason Jesus has created a church is to make us great in some way. Greater than we were before. Church is the place where Jesus trains and teaches us to be great ones. I think we can, over time, as we hang around the church... Maybe we wouldn't pay lip service to this, but we can feel like there's kind of a continuum of greatness among us. Who's really good Christians? Who are sort of mediocre Christians? Who are Christians that are sort of struggling to, to get what this whole thing is about? If somebody asks us, well, who's the, the best Christian you know? What metric would you apply? Do we assume there's a kind of honor roll in the church? Right? Among those who, who Jesus is pleased with and those who are, are less distinguished. Do less, serve less, know less. I think the disciples here are, are waiting to get their grades back from Jesus. Jesus, who's, who's an A student? Who's a B student? Right? Who's going to be at the top of this new kingdom? And as they're busy wondering where their grades are coming back to them at, Jesus turns away from them. He goes and he finds a child. And says he brings the child to himself and then he places that child among them. And he says, this is what we're shooting for. This is what greatness looks like in my church. Unless you change and become like children, you won't even enter this kingdom of heaven, let alone be great in it. Church, then, according to Jesus, is a place not designed to make us great. Church is a place designed to teach us how to become small, how to become less, how to become like a child. Children possess loyalty. Children possess trust. They possess humility and simplicity and, and kind of an other-centeredness in their character. In a way that, that I think Jesus is saying, paramount among all the virtues that I prize in my church, in my kingdom, are the ones these, these little ones possess. We could, we could watch what happens up front during the children's sermon each week and consider what, what Jesus might 
learn, have us learn from, from this community up here, how they relate, how they exhibit faith, how they exhibit trust. Church is a place where Jesus has invited us to learn how to be little, to make us smaller, to make us less preoccupied with ourselves. And I think bound up in this littleness is, is really maybe at the center of that, the, the virtue of humility. Right? To be little, to be like a little one, is to be humble. C.S. Lewis has, has written a lot on the virtue of humility. And what he, he says is at the, the center of that, that virtue is not thinking less about yourself. Right? Not thinking you are, are lower or, or denigrating yourself but actually having the ability to think less about yourself in, in the sense that you, you don't have to spend so much time and energy even thinking about your own well-being, who you are, what, what you need, or how others are perceiving you. Humility is, is this great joy and freedom to think about and attend to others. He talks about humility being the ability to enjoy life easily because your attention has been turned away from yourself. So I think there is a, a gift from Jesus here at the beginning of Matthew 18 to free us from the, the pretensions and the ambitions that whatever we do here has to be about our own greatness or about our own accomplishment or about how others are going to see us. Jesus says that's not what the church is here for. Receive the gift of smallness, childlikeness. But he goes on from that to warn us in verse 6 and in the verses that follow that anyone who messes with that, anyone who would bring pride or power or their own self-importance into the church in such a way that it would cause those pursuing littleness to stumble, to get a different idea of what church is about. He says, woe unto them. It would be better for them to be drowned to the bottom of the sea than to make my kingdom about something it's not. Church is a place where it must be safe to be humble, simple, and trusting, and small. But Jesus goes on from, from this first teaching to express that, that those who are little and small in the kingdom can also be vulnerable in some ways. And so in what comes next, Jesus goes on to say that the church must become a community that protects one another, particularly at times when, when we might be prone to wander off from this community. Look at verse 12 and following. Jesus says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep... And one of those sheep wanders away. Will he not leave the 99 on the hills to go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. I'm used to thinking about this parable in its Luke 15 context. Luke gives us the same parable. And when Luke uses it, 
we, we connect it with the lost coins, the lost sons. We think about those who are outside the church lost and then Jesus goes to seek and save them. But Matthew puts this parable in a different context. Matthew uses this to talk about those who are within the church who get lost, who start to wander off, and how they need a, a good shepherd to go after them. Look at how the, the passage continues. So Jesus tells this parable about the lost sheep going to find the lost sheep. And so he says in verse 15, so if your brother or sister sins, this is, I think, largely talking about our relationships within the church family. If your brother or sister sins, go, go to where they are, like that lost sheep, and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's referring back to the, the Old Testament law there. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they re refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Jesus makes it clear here that the church he's going to call into existence is not going to be full of perfect people. It's going to be a community of sinners, people who struggle, people who make mistakes, people who wander off. But I think this particular teaching of Jesus lands at a tricky spot for most of us. We were hesitant to, to sort of embrace the, the kind of, of seeking out the lost in the way Jesus describes. Because I think most of us don't want to be part of a church community that's legalistic, that's overly concerned about the sin of our brothers and sisters. Right? We don't want to be part of a church that's a community of condemnation. And so more often than not, I think our guiding assumption is that church is better when it's a place to sort of live and let live. How someone is or isn't walking out their faith, faith is, is their personal business. Right? The last thing we want to do is micromanage the affairs of our brothers and sisters. And our, our intense sense of, of individualism and personal liberty in Western culture feeds, I think, this assumption that church and, and faith are kind of a private matter. But I think it's an assumption that Jesus challenges pretty directly in this passage. He says, when someone in the church strays from the ways, strays from the teaching, strays from the commands of Jesus, the loving church is the church that seeks them out in their lostness, that goes to where they are with the hope that they might turn them away 
from lostness and, and back into the fold of Jesus. And in fact, this isn't just good advice from Jesus. It's not just an elective. It's a command, as Jesus puts it here, to turn one another away from sin. But the way we do that with each other really matters. Jesus says, go first one on one. Go heart to heart. Go full of grace and with truth. With your aim being compassion rather than condemnation of one who is caught in sin. This is what I would refer to as a call-in approach. The church, Jesus says, is actually a place where we're to practice compassion and love for one another by calling each other back into his heart, back into his fold when we stray. But I think it's, it's challenging because that calling back in makes us vulnerable. It's hard to do that with each other. Do you remember back in the fall when we were going through 1 John, I shared with you uh, this, this image or illustration of the grace and truth matrix. And it, it has to do with how we operate in our relationships with each other as brothers and sisters, particularly when there's conflict, when there's sin, when there's something that needs to be addressed. And I think most of us have tendencies other than what Jesus describes in this passage. My usual tendency is to, to live in the hangout quadrant that you can see up here in blue. Right? I don't want to stir up hard feelings in a relationship. I don't want to create a sense of awkwardness. And so I'll exercise grace and compassion and love, but I'm not going to talk about the thing that needs to be named or acknowledged. I'm hanging out. Other times, maybe because it's uncomfortable to address the sin directly with that person, we, we begin to talk about that sin or talk about that person. And we create a, a sense of judgment or, or shame around them. That's what I would, would call that, that sector of calling out. We're naming the sin, but we're not showing grace and compassion in our relationship with the person, moving toward them in addressing it. Or maybe it, it becomes so fraught and difficult to, to do this over time that we just sort of abandon having relationships of any consequence or depth with each other checking out. All of those positions, though, are, are perilous for our life in the church. Because if we look at this passage in, in verses 18 through 20, Jesus authorizes and empowers the church to call one another back into his love, into his restoration, into his help to resist sin and defeat and death. To call one another back to our first love. And so we need to, to develop these habits with each other. Have you ever been approached by someone about the sin in your life or about a decision you've made? And if so, how willing were you to receive their concern or their correction? How open are we when someone is, is being vulnerable and, and sharing their heart with us in that way? Or maybe on the flip side, maybe you're aware of someone who needs you to speak into their lives right now. 
They have an area where, where they're wandering away from the gospel in the heart of Jesus. And you sense that Jesus might have you sit down and talk with them, share your heart with them. Jesus' vision for the church is, is one where we need one another in this way. We set aside our, our great egos to become great in the kingdom of God. And in our littleness, we, we care for one another. We become a flock that, that tends to the needs of one another. Jesus has these first two assumptions that he challenges for us. But the last, the last lesson, the last word in Matthew 18 that Jesus would have us think about is forgiveness, mercy, and an abundance of forgiveness. Jesus wants us to know that as we live out our lives in the church, forgiveness will be the, the lifeblood of our community. And so Matthew 18 concludes with a story. Look at the context that, that gives rise to this. Matthew 18, 21. It says, after, after talking about how we might turn one another away from sin, how we might deal with these messy relationships in the church, Peter asks Jesus, so Lord, how many times then am I to forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers him, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Seems Peter can already anticipate the kind of life he's going to have being part of the church. If you've been around the church for any length of time, right, you, you have inevitably been hurt, you've been offended by You've been disappointed by someone in it. It's not a matter of, of if, but when. Right? Because this is, is a community of people still working out our obedience to Jesus. So what do we do when, when hurt and offense come through the community of the church into our lives? How do we respond to that? The rabbis in Jesus' day often talked about the need to forgive up to three times if someone sins against you. But on the fourth, you could, you could turn your back. You could walk away. Peter looks to be even more generous here by offering to forgive up to seven times. But Jesus pushes the need for forgiveness beyond limit. He says the church needs to be a place for 70 times seven forgiveness, unlimited forgiveness. And to explain what that looks like, why that's so, how that could ever be, Jesus gives us a story. He talks about a, a king who is settling up the debts in his kingdom, and he calls for the roles and to see who owes him what. And it doesn't take him long to find out there is one servant who is chief debtor among everyone in the kingdom. There is a servant who has racked up a 10,000 talents of gold debt to the king. 
This is kind of uh, like one of those numbers if you're a kid and you say, the guy owed him a bajillion dollars. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. 10,000 talents of gold was more money than was in circulation in the ancient world at that time. Right? This guy owed more money than could possibly be repaid or even found to give to that king. His debt was unthinkably large. And so the man is called before the king, and the king asks him about the debt, and, and he asks him how, how we're going to resolve this debt. Do we need to sell your family into slavery to pay the debt? What could be done to eliminate this debt? And the man sees he's, he's up against a wall. There's no way he could ever repay this debt. And so he does the only thing he can. He begs the king for mercy. He says, I need your help. Would you forgive me this debt? And the king, seeing his position, grants him not just partial forgiveness, but total absolution of his debts. He's free to go. A man freed from a lifetime taking from this king. But we're told just after that, he goes out onto the, the streets and he is confronted by a, a fellow debtor, someone who, who owes him, it says, a, a hundred silver coins. And to put that into perspective, that's about one one millionth of the debt he had just been forgiven. He sees a man who owes him one mil, a debt one million times smaller than, than the one the king has just absolved. And yet, when he's before this man, he demands repayment. He seizes him by the neck. He chokes him until the man would repay him. And it says that, that the other servants saw this take place, and they went back to the king. And they told him what had taken place, and the king called that first debtor back before him. And he says that he is now going to be judged according to his own standard. If he refuses to show mercy after having been shown incredible generosity and mercy, then he is to be thrown into prison and he will stay there until all of that 10,000 talent debt is repaid. Jesus' point is that this man desired to receive mercy, but he refused to give it to anyone else. Many of us come to the church because we are longing to receive mercy. And the church is a place where God extends mercy to us. We come into the church indebted and trapped by choices we've made. We know how deeply we need the cleansing and the forgiveness of Jesus. And the, and the church is a place where God freely gives that gift to us. Every day, in new ways, that's, that's a debt that I continue to need paid for me. New mercies from God. But it's easy for us to forget that as we come to God seeking mercy that we are surrounded by a community of people who need that same mercy from us. The church is, is a community of sinners on their way to redemption. The church is a community of mercy recipients 
of fellow debtors. And while I might want the church to meet my needs, to pardon my offenses, how much do I want that for all of you? Especially if if your shortcomings, if your debts, if your offenses have wounded or impacted me. Jesus pushes us to understand that his mercy is unlimited, but it's meant to call forth a different way of relating, a different way of being, that we're called to extend that mercy to others as well as to receive it. As we think about how we're a church family together with each other, I want, I want us to hear the good news from this chapter this morning. That in the lives we share together, we are free not to be consumed with how to demonstrate our greatness. We are free in this place to be little, to be unassuming, to take that burden off our shoulders. The good news is that we've also been given one another to to turn each other from sin and to come back to stay close to the heart of Jesus. And so I invite that from you in my life May we invite that from one another. Turn us back to the heart of Jesus to practice relationships full of grace and truth. And may we also acknowledge that this is a place where we have been given infinite mercy from our God and that we would choose to reflect and to extend that mercy to each other. We pray for us. Lord, I pray that increasingly we would be a church defined by your ideas, not the limitations of our own assumptions. May we be a church that is full of the freedom and goodness of the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We now live in the glory and the work of that redemption. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.